is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Happy mid-January. Is that a contradiction in terms? Is that an oxymoron? Happy mid-January. Well, you, you always get these news stories, yes. and I use news in inverted yes. commas about this time of year, about yes. Blue Monday, yes. the most miserable day of yes. the year, which I believe is the day this episode gets released but i also think that it was just some pr thing that spiraled out of all control maybe i've got a new lease on life after coming out of self-isolation yes do you want to know how i celebrated my freedom go on i went ice skating wow why is that so surprising to you not sure you're that coordinated i mean i'm less coordinated but where did you go ice skating a leisure center close to us and you you're right i mean you have never seen anybody more rigid I look like rigor mortis has set in. Did you manage to stay up? Just about through moving very, very slowly and largely hanging onto the side. So my wife can ice skate reasonably well. My son had to have one of those little penguins. I definitely need a little penguin. Oh, I think you'd be so graceful gliding across I the ice. I think I would, really. Weren't you quite sort of scared of falling over? Scared of falling over and scared of having my fingers sliced off. What, because you, the, you fall over and then the skate... Yeah. Then somebody skates over my fingers. Oh, oh, I see, yeah. Did I tell you that years ago, I got asked to do a uh, a camera test for Dancing on Ice. You'd have to have learned how to ice skate then. First, it was mystifying to me that they asked me because I would be the one who people would be pointing at the TV and going, who? These shows are just always full of non-entities you've never heard of. I think I might have been asked to do it after 2015, actually. I bet. I mean, you've been asked to do everything at this point. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. So then I went and did this camera test, and I think I was so bad at it. There's a bad which makes for good television. Yeah. And then there's a bad that they just can't work with. And I think I definitely fall into the latter category. You were actually skating, were you? Yeah, they took me to Alexander Palace. I remember it was open to the public on the day they did it, and there were children crowding around and pointing and laughing at how bad I was. What year was this? 2007, 2008. Wow. I don't think it's sort of the future for either of us. But did you have a good time? Yes. You're basically just relieved that you didn't have, suffer serious injury by the end of it. Yeah, Exactly. I got a real adrenaline rush just through not being dead or, or maimed. Can I just say, though, actually what is really good about this story? It happened in a leisure centre? Yeah, it's the end of the leisure centre story. <laughs> it's only taken us two and a bit years or something, but we've got to the end of the leisure centre story. It's a, it's a reboot. Yeah. Well, anyway, well done for going ice skating. And I sort of feel the thing about the January thing is that we're on the upswing. Days are getting a bit longer? Yeah, that's the thing I'm sort of quite obsessed about. I keep thinking to myself each day, okay, so we're more than three weeks on from the shortest day of the year. It's about two minutes a day. The day extends, or at least when it gets dark, extends. And so that's sort of 40 minutes. So then you're getting into business in a couple of weeks' time. You're sort of looking more like tending towards five o'clock for getting dark. You know, that's sort of... The upswing, isn't it? I do always feel slightly cheated, though, because you get that darkest day in mid-December and then you think things are going to get better from here on in. But you've had all the excitement of the build-up to Christmas and Christmas and New Year. And then January and February are typically the coldest months of the year. And yes, it's getting a bit lighter, but there's nothing to look forward to in those months. Well, there is February. (laughs) (laughs) And then March. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Spring on the horizon, on the distant horizon. Yeah. Feels a long way off, Ed, though. Mm. So, are we going to talk about what we're talking about? Yes, let's let's do that. And this week, this is something you've been wanting to do for a while. We're yep. going to be talking about NFTs. The National Film Theatre. 
non-fungible tokens. Oh, sorry. Finally, we're talking about non-fungible tokens, because I don't know about you, but I was sick of hearing about fungible tokens. Yeah, FTs. I love the way with this that we it's just a given that we all know what fungible means. I'd never heard that word in my life before I heard it with a non before it. But what they are are unique units of data used to certify the ownership of a digital asset. Now, that sounds incredibly dry, but you will have seen hysterical news coverage of them and insane amounts of money being spent on digital art with the principle of these NFTs behind them. And it's a technology that runs on blockchain. As we discussed in our blockchain episode, there are huge environmental problems around this. Uh, It uses up enormous amounts of energy. So in this episode, what we're going to try and do is, first of all, wrap our heads around what NFTs are, because even given everything I've just said, I still don't really think I quite understand. And I've got a thousand questions about what I do understand. Then we're going to look at the environmental issue around NFTs and blockchains and, and see if we can get past that, if we can be optimistic at all about these, when there's this huge problem with them in terms of climate. And then if we can get past that, we're going to try and see how the underlying principles and the underlying technology could then be used in society in the future. Does that sound like a description? Yep. I'm really looking forward to the conversation and getting my head around the whole thing. So to to do that job of explaining it for us, we have Anthony Cuthbertson, who's a technology journalist. Then we're going to be talking to Holly Jean Book, who's an assistant professor of environment and sustainability and a writer on climate. And we're going to really try and grapple with this energy issue. And then after that, we're going to be talking to Andrea Barron-Kelly, who is an academic working on some of the principles behind this technology and its impact on society. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is this new burst of life I have, this new lease on life post self-isolation. That first day I went ice skating, the next day I didn't leave the house and I don't think I got dressed beyond a dressing gown, which uh, was how I'd spent the prior 10 days. So I thought I've got I've got to do something about this. So I've been working on my step count and uh, here are my scores so far. 13,000, 16,000, and 17,637 steps yesterday. That's good. I thought since you're always giving us your latest swimming statistics, I would try and uh, compete with my uh, with my step count. Well, it's, it is a January thing, isn't it, basically? I, so my reason to be cheerful is about I'm, I'm back in the water. I hadn't actually been in for two weeks, and so I was slightly worried as to how what it was going to be like, and it was five, I think, when I went back in. Centigrade centigrade yeah it hasn't been too bad did you get any swimming paraphernalia for christmas yes i was i think i said to you didn't i that i got a sort of dry what they call a dry robe i know that was on your letter to santa yeah and has that made a big difference it's made a bit of a difference i go on my bicycle it's sort of slightly like wearing a dressing gown on your on your bicycle that's what i look like for a man who's not always had the best experience with paparazzi photos you seem very Blase about riding a bike in a dressing gown. No, to be fair, it's like a coat. It's more, it's more, it's more like a coat. The the thing is that because of lockdowns and so on, the ponds were closed for part of last winter. So I haven't actually been through a winter yet, even though I, it feels like I've been going on about this for sort of ten years, probably. And I am quite. I think I did an appeal on the podcast last time for people to do me a uh, model 
of how the outside air temperature relates to the pond temperature, looking at the statistics of the past. I mean, there should be must be some deep learning, machine learning, AI, algorithmic, something or other that can tell us. Do you see what I mean? And how does it make you feel that having asked our listeners for that tiny favour of compiling an enormous data set and then <laughs> extrapolating various well, it theories is probably from quite, it? I agree it's quite complicated. I'm not sure how it helps. How would it affect your behaviour? don't know really i did buy one other thing actually i bought a replacement pair of socks uh swimming socks and that has helped a bit because there were some holes in the previous ones and was that from fish nibbling at your toes no no it wasn't you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd I just said to Ed, um, we're the idiots and we need the idiots guide here. So to provide that, we have Anthony Cuthbertson, who is technology journalist at The Independent. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So so NFTs, non-fungible tokens, there's something that I think a lot of people will have heard of at this point, but wouldn't have heard of a year ago, but they wouldn't necessarily know what they are. And I think part of that is because it's easy to find a complicated, confusing explanation, but it's hard to get a short, easy to understand one. So do you accept the challenge? Can can you give us the shortest, most succinct version of a definition of an NFT that you can? Yes, I'll give it my best shot. So an NFT, a non-fungible token, the key word there is fungible. And that essentially means uh, replaceable or something that can be copied. So if I gave you, Jeff, £10 today, and then in two weeks' time I asked for it back, you could give me the same £10 note, but you could also give me £10 coins or you could do a bank transfer. There's lots of different ways of doing it. That's fungible. If it's non-fungible, like a unique work of art, for example, and I give you that, in two weeks' time, I ask for it back. I would expect the exact same piece of art back. I wouldn't want a picture of it or a photocopy of it or even a well-done replica of it. So non-fungible tokens are essentially unique digital items that exist only as one, and they can be traded on the blockchain. And I think one of the problems with trying to explain them and even trying to understand them is that it they draw together lots of different sort of buzzy words like cryptocurrency, blockchain, Web 3.0, metaverse, all these things to really fully explain this and say why they're useful. You kind of have to touch on these things. And I know you've already done episodes on cryptocurrency and on blockchain. So NFTs sort of the next step in that journey, I think. Let's then just sort of taking it step by step. How does the concept of the NFT fit into the blockchain? So like Bitcoin, which runs on the blockchain, the NFTs are traded or sent or bought or sold using the blockchain. That's what certifies their uniqueness and also their ownership. The quickest way to explain what the blockchain is, is it's an online ledger. It essentially cuts out all the middlemen. So rather than um, when I'm sending you money, it, rather than it going through a bank or anything, it goes directly from my wallet to your wallet via the blockchain. So there's no need for middlemen. I mean, it, it, we, there's kind of lots of different places to go now. But but just give us some examples of what an NFT can be. So most people probably would have heard about NFTs relating to artworks. Uh, the most famous would be 
the one done sold by Beeple, the digital artist Beeple, which sold for $69 million last year. People know art and memes that have been sold as NFTs, but it could essentially be any kind of digital item. You could make an NFT out of uh, music or writing. Podcasts? You could make an uh, NFT of this podcast episode and transfer the NFT. What would that be? That would be just a, an audio file, would it? The audio file would not be the NFT. The NFT would be hosted on the blockchain. But yeah, this is where it gets complicated because the ownership of an NFT doesn't necessarily denote legal um, rights over it. So you could still hold the legal rights to something, but not the digital ownership of it. Normally, they come hand in hand. But one of the best things about NFTs is that you can include in the first sale. So the artist's create something, makes an NFT of it. And in that smart contract of the NFT, they include a commission. So every time that artwork is then sold on, that artist can then collect 5% or 10% or 1% commission in perpetuity. So they'll always get money for their work. So if they, they sell it for £100, but it becomes it's worth now a million pounds two years down the line, that artist will still benefit from, from that. So it's not contingent on somebody doing the decent thing and thinking, oh, when I sell this, I better make sure that the creator gets their cut. No. It's built into the transaction itself. Exactly. So every time it passes on, that goes back to the creator. And if, if I was to take a, a picture of Ed in his swimming trunks and maybe customise that uh, with, with some emoji... I'm a cold, some... big cold water swimmer, actually. <laughs> yeah, you may be one of the few people who's not heard me boasting about this. I, ha- I have some, I wouldn't say incriminating, but I took pictures that Ed would You want actually the... have a picture of this, actually. It's I, a do, real, I do. It's a real-world example here. It's not something you'd want in the public domain necessarily. Definitely. But I, <laughs> but but if, if I maybe customised it with some emoji, I'm you know obviously thinking eggplant, but there are, there are probably others too. How does that go from being a thing on my phone that I've made to being an NFT? So you need firstly a digital wallet to host this NFT, and then you need to upload it to a platform to sell it. Well, you don't necessarily if only if you're planning to sell it would you need to upload it to a platform. But there's online marketplaces. The most famous is called OpenSea. And this is where people go to look and buy and sell NFTs. So, and then it would be transferred from your wallet um, through to whoever buys it. The problem at the moment is that lots of people have heard about them and there are famous people who, Eminem owns them. Um, There's big auction houses like Sotheby's that are um, auctioning them. But very few people actually own them there's only recent data i saw was 0.1 percent of cryptocurrency owners own them and cryptocurrency owners are even a small percentage of people generally so it's a really tiny percentage of people that own them and one of the reasons for this is the barriers for entry it's firstly they're difficult to understand but then they're also difficult to uh, get hold of you need to get hold of if you want to buy one you need to figure out how to get some cryptocurrency normally ethereum Uh, you need to figure out how to get a wallet and then use all the open seas platforms. So it's the very early stages and that's why it's um, so difficult at the moment. Um, and it's become quite sort of inflated with hype and it's a bubble, maybe like the dot-com era was in the sort of early, late nineties, early two thousands. So let's take this slightly uh, grim uh, hypothetical a bit further. Oh, come on, Ed. It's a lovely photo. Jeff sells the picture um as an nft and i'm i'm thinking i don't really want this picture out there 
I then buy it from him. But but I'm not. I mean, the picture's still out there, isn't it? I mean, they're. Yeah. See, this is what's sort of confusing: is non fungible token. The very nature of the internet and digital anything is it is it is completely fungible. I mean, it's sort of reproducible. You would be what they call a right clicker, Ed. That's uh, someone who believes you could right click on that image and download the JPEG for yourself, and you know, own a, essentially own a copy of it, which is a very fair sort of point to take, but the digital ownership of it would is the sort of key to it. So a way to explain this is that uh, bringing, I'm going to bring in the buzzword Web 3.0 because I think that's uh, quite exciting. Web, it's very simple. Web, web 1 was the early internet. It's, it was all about information. You click on a static web page and you can read information. Web 2 was all about communication. So what the this platform we're using right now to speak over, th- this is Web 2. Um, apps like WhatsApp and everything like that, all Web 2. The next step step of that is Web 3, and that's all about ownership. So it's going to be decentralized and not um, run by... Your data won't be passing through these centralized entities like Facebook servers or Google servers. It'll be in a network in the same way that, uh, as was described in your blockchain podcast. Um, And this, this era... Um, web3 era is where things like digital ownership um, become a lot more important and your your ownership of uh, an nft uh, has more value in this sort of new economy but what what value this is this is what i struggle with because you know you, it's it's still the internet and people will still be able to put stuff on it whether it's facebook or or wherever if they're carting the thing that they own from one bit of the internet to another so if if i buy the mona lisa you know it's i've got the mona lisa and i I get to choose where people can see it whereas you know if i get a, a print of the mona lisa or i get an artist to do a replica of it it's not the same brush strokes it doesn't look identical whereas if if you do what Ed says and you save a picture, it, it is just identical. The the Beeple picture you mentioned, the the right clicking, what I get is identical to what the guy who paid sixty nine million dollars got. Essentially, yes. The, the this is why a lot of people have problems with it, myself included, to be honest. But it's what sort of comes next, which is the more exciting thing. So it's kind of speculative beyond just the value of it increasing. It's it's speculative as to the use of it. What's more exciting really is where these NFTs, the smart contracts that underpin NFTs, what they can be used for beyond, you know, making a funny JPEG. They can be used um, within, I don't know if you play online games or anything like that, um, like Fortnite or Second Life or anything like that, but they're, there, you can own items within them, unique items within them. And I think with the emergence of the metaverse, which could be a big thing going forward. I mean, you see Facebook re-sort of navigate their entire operation towards being metaverse-facing. Um, with the emergence of the metaverse and people increasingly living online, the idea of digital ownership becomes a lot more appealing. And NFTs, anyone can look to see who owns it. Who actually, Anyone can have a copy of it. You can see who owns it, and that's where. And but it's not just things that you could um, make an NFT. I think one of the interesting use cases I saw was that less than a third 
of the world of people in the world actually have their their land on land registry they have no actual sort of titles to their land it's just their land if they have were able to make an nft of their land a sort of representation of their land as an nft they would then be able to firstly prove ownership of this plot of land but secondly then have access to forms of finance that they wouldn't previously have had access to that's a very interesting point about the land. Why is that Web 3.0? What's Web 3.0-ish about it? That would just be the idea of it being decentralized and being hosted on this blockchain where anyone can see it and it doesn't necessarily need. They don't need to go to a bank or some institution to say this is my land or whatever. They can, they can sort of do it that way. You could just register it on the blockchain without the photo, but the, the, the NFT part of it is the photo of the Not lab. necessarily a photo. It's, um, it's, it's the proof of ownership. It's a digital, it, an NFT doesn't have to be uh, art or anything like that. It's just a digital item, proof of ownership of an item. Just to sort of be simplistic about this, I mean, it is extraordinary that someone will pay $69 million for something of, you know, at least that some people would say is a very dubious value. Now, you might say that happens a lot, but, you know, it is sort of, it's hard to get your head around, isn't it? I find it hard to get my head around art buzz uh, generally. What's going to happen, I think, is 98% of all these projects and NFTs are going to sort of disappear and it'll pop like the bubble did uh, following the dot-com era. And then you'll see the real use cases and the, how the technology will emerge um, over the coming years. But at the moment, you're right, it's complete hype. It's basically gambling at the moment. They'll, they'll buy something in the hope that it'll go up. Um, and it's a bit sort of the Wild West of the, the crypto era at the moment. But um, I think we'll see it level out as we go forward. So just listen to what you've said. Is this an accurate representation of it? There's a new technology which is about ownership it's digital deeds and the early manifestation of this is to do with making art people can smell that it's a interesting technology and the art world has a certain type of buzz or glamour to it and because of that all this silly money has gone into it but the the basic idea of these digital deeds is more than likely going to go somewhere very different and be transformative in these other ways that we just can't really think of yet exactly it was it's like um when the iphone was released you'd maybe never have any idea that the sort of huge apps would be uh, maybe delivery apps like delivery or tinder or um you know doing video chats on whatsapp from your phone all those things came after the technology was created and the platform was there to sort of allow people to then come up with different ideas and um, move forward with it. So that's why it's maybe difficult to say exactly where we're going from here. We're going to talk about the environmental impact, which came up in the blockchain episode with our next guest, and it is troubling. Um, so that's that's something that needs to be addressed. But with the other ideas that you're talking about floating around, how likely is it that this ends up being something for good rather than something that exists in an unregulated corner of the internet until governments catch up and regulate it? That's a good question. Um, definitely hard to predict. Um, we have a sort of vague template by looking at cryptocurrency, by looking at Bitcoin 
because that's been around for more than 10 years now. And we've seen how governments have reacted to it and how it can be semi-regulated um, to a certain extent, but it's safe, um, which is one of the most important things is people don't want to sort of have their 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 bitcoins robbed from them, um, you know, co- copied and pasted away. I, I think it, it's this idea of moving away from the centralization. We've become so reliant on not just the traditional middlemen of banks and solicitors and lawyers and all these things, but also the the big tech giants that have emerged that completely have free reign on our data, uh, like Facebook and Google, and they do some pretty dreadful stuff with it. Um, this new era that's emerging will have far more ownership over our data. Some of these decentralized apps that are emerging, they actually say, hey, can we use your data in, in the same way that maybe Facebook would so that we can target ads and we will give you a percentage of the money we receive. So we will pay you via cryptocurrency or whatever to use our app. So you'll be using a, a version of WhatsApp or a social media platform and you'll actually be being paid to use it. Let's talk just finally about governments and their role in this. We haven't really talked about the ro- any role for government. There's a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. How much does the Jeffocracy need to get involved in the kind of regulation of all this of all this stuff is it a bit the wild west does it need regulation what role can government play yeah it does need some form of regulation in the same way that the cryptocurrency space needed it um when cryptocurrency exchanges had no sort of policing the likes of mount gox which was a a japanese-based exchange uh emerged and then lost everyone's funds and they never got them back and it's been a big drama but um, instances like that have um, fallen down as as uh, regulators kind of understand how they can police them a bit better and make sure that the people using them are safe and protected. But regulation is always two steps behind technology. Um, it's always been that way. And we're only just seeing them catching up with the likes of Facebook now. And they're trying to get Facebook to sort of lose their monopoly advice to sell Instagram and WhatsApp and all their other platforms to make them separate. But what does it even look like regulation of this? Yeah, that's difficult to say, but it, it would be um, regulating the businesses that are involved in it. So say OpenSea right. is the platform being used most right. at, at the moment. It'd be about um, sort of making sure that they're playing fairly. And it, it must be rife with uh, money laundering or tax avoidance it's not just about protecting people's investments there must be all these other ways which cross international borders that would just be a nightmare to try and regulate yeah i think there's always going to be a bit of that you see the likes of north korea trying to bypass sanctions by mining cryptocurrency and doing that sort of thing and you say money laundering it's probably always going to be a thing in the same way that it is with our traditional economy with fiat currency cash is used by drug dealers the world over um but the idea of it being borderless is actually a great thing again we're speaking from privileged positions of the sort of economies that we exist within um we don't need to rely on remittances or anything like that but where el salvador for example that's taken the lead and other um central american countries like venezuela and others they a lot of their economy relies on remittance and before they would have to pay huge western union fees and now it's virtually free um to receive all this remittance i mean a quarter or a third of their economy relies on that so um it's hugely beneficial for developing economies well look 
it's it's a head scratcher um it really is anthony you've been an absolutely brilliant guest in sort of taking us through at least uh, the basics and maybe i feel like i've had my head very well scratched there yeah yeah <laughs> um well i sort of feel like we we've we've been given a a, a very very good uh nfts 101 class uh, anthony cuthbertson thank you so much for joining us thank you very much for having me and do you want to buy an nft of ed and his swimming trunks slightly customized with emoji i'd love to let me send me the link <laughs> the open sea link i'll i'll be the first to click on it small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So we're going to talk now about the environmental aspects of um, nfts which which obviously just came up in the conversation is very very important and i'm delighted to say that we're joined by holly jean buck who is assistant professor of environment and sustainability at the university at buffalo in buffalo and a writer on climate thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me we talked about cryptocurrencies and blockchain on our podcast a while ago and 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 a thing that came up was the huge amounts of energy used in the mining and uh, in the minting and verifying. Um, can you talk to us about the part that NFTs play in that? I mean, what, how worried should we be about NFTs in this kind of environmental and climate context? So most NFTs um, are run on the Ethereum network, which is the kind of second biggest cryptocurrency. So not as big of a carbon footprint as Bitcoin has, but still not negligible. NFTs are kind of a, a small fraction of what goes on on Ethereum. Um, but some of the concerns aren't just where we are now, but where we might be in the future if these rates of increase continue. Each transaction on Ethereum might use as much electricity as an average U.S. household uses during the week. <laughs> Our households aren't known for being uh, super efficient, so that's pretty bad. And NFTs could be more than more than that in, in their creation. So it is something worth paying attention to. Where does the weight of responsibility currently lie for the emissions, which I'm guessing is just sort of every user on the blockchain, the energy that's used, it's uh, on their energy bill. Where should it lie? Is, is is it with Ethereum? Is it with the artists? Is there a different way of thinking about the responsibility for, for the harm to the environment caused by NFTs and blockchain? It's important to know that most of the impacts, I mean, they have to do with how these coins are mined, right? How they're minted. Um, and right now, both Ethereum and Bitcoin are using this proof of work system. Um, which essentially has 
all of these computers all around the world racing to solve complex problems. Um, it could take trillions of tries to crack some of these problems, and it requires so much energy to run these computers and keep them cool. And so Ethereum is switching their system from this proof-of-work, or what some environmentalists call proof-of-waste system, to something called proof-of-stake, which that would reduce the emissions, you know, 99%. Um, and so that's slated to happen in 2022. They've been working on it for a very long time. That would help a lot. And what does that mean, proof-of-stake? Proof-of-stake is a system where people hold a stake in the system, basically, um, and if you cheat in your transactions, you could lose your stake and get banned from the network. So it's a different philosophy of how you keep the system secure. One concern people have with that is that the system is less decentralized. I mean, that's one of the main values of these systems is their decentralization. But it's important because it doesn't require computational power like this proof of work system does. Do you think that this proof of stake, if it happens, does it so I mean, there might be lots of other issues with NFTs, but does it, how much does it solve the environmental problem? I think it goes a long way. You still have Bitcoin to deal with, um, which is a worse, <laughs> worse system. But I think, you know, a lot more people will feel comfortable with it. And, and that discomfort, is that something we've seen in the NFT world? Are artists uncomfortable with the environmental impact oh yeah a lot of them are um and a lot of the prospective consumers are too i mean in general this is a community that cares about climate change and is attuned to these issues and, and as it stands though if you are an artist there's no way of doing nfts without having this kind of horrendous climate impact well there's other cryptocurrencies like cardana sano currencies that use proof of stake. So you could choose a different, you know, system, but you would probably have a less reach that way. And can this proof of stake idea be applied to all of these blockchain technologies? Yeah, it could. I think the, the challenge there for something like Bitcoin is people are really invested in how it is. So it's hard to make these transitions, but Ethereum is very committed to it, it seems. And, and you believe them? I mean, it's hard when you work in climate to believe anybody because we've seen so much delay in climate that you sort of, you know, have the skepticism <laughs> with these future promises. And just to finish, tell us about your wider work on, on climate, because I don't think we should have you on without hearing about looking at these NFTs and the impact on climate. It's not your normal day job. Well, I look at how carbon can be removed from the atmosphere and what are the social dimensions, what are the policies for that. And so it actually intersects blockchain in some ways because there's a lot of new projects that are using blockchains, not necessarily NFTs always, but um, thinking about how this could be applied to carbon markets, for example, which are broken in a number of ways. Could blockchain solutions um, help fix some of the broken carbon markets. And what is your thinking on that? Is it got potential? I think that there's a few problems with carbon markets where this could make a difference. One is the double counting problem. Um, so carbon credits can be counted in different jurisdictions, but if you have a decentralized record of all of this, that could help. There's also a lot of been a lot of fraud and, and misuse. So maybe blockchain could be an answer to that too. And there's some great projects like 
Klimadao, like Nori, that are interesting in terms of what they're trying to do to address some of these deficiencies we see. And that's really interesting. So what is the what is the reason why blockchain would do something that the current carbon markets can't do? Is it because it's this global sort of ledger and therefore you can't do the double counting and the it's harder to engage in the double counting and the fraud? Is that right? Yeah, and part of the other drive is that when you say you've done, you know, a carbon project or whatever, it has to be um, verified by a third party that can be very expensive. <laughs> That's a lot of the fees of, you know, carbon markets go to that. Um, but if there was a verification system that was um, separate, it could be cheaper and maybe more people could participate. These are all pretty speculative, but I'm glad that people are thinking about them. And if people are interested in finding out more, just mention again those two projects you were talking about. Yeah, people can look at a a company called Nori, um, a system called KlimaDAO, that's Decentralized Autonomous Organization, also the Blockchain for Climate Foundation or the Crypto Climate Accord. So a lot of people working on this. Really interesting. Well, look, uh, Holly Jean Buck, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to hear uh, an environmental point of view on NFTs and, and blockchain. Thank you. So we're going to speak now to Andrea Baron Kelly, who is a reader in mathematics at the uh, City University London and economic data science theme lead at the Alan Turing Institute. Hello. Hello. Thanks for coming on. We've we've been over the course of this episode trying to wrap our heads around NFTs. And um, I think as with cryptocurrencies, NFTs are becoming one of these things that people have heard of, but have no direct experience of. Now, uh, your work in part involves looking at how technology uh, changes human behavior and vice versa. So, how do you see NFTs becoming part of everyday lives? At the moment, it's a thing that most people have no interaction with. How, how does that change? Will that change? So NFTs, I think, are going to be present in our life more than cryptocurrencies, at least in the, in the short term. And it's important to understand what they are. So they are digital assets representing uh, real-world objects. They uh, offer creators or producers a way to to prove authenticity and originality in an undisputable way. This opens up infinite possibilities, <laughs> which uh, range from, well, collectibles is one. So the stickers, football player stickers, they were big, at least in Italy when, when I was a kid, I guess they are still. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Panini we had here, didn't we, Ed? Yeah, Panini, exactly. And... Uh, NBA, for example, has massively invested into this. They can be made digital. They cannot be uh, copied. You have a proof of uh, authenticity of your piece. Of course, when it's a digital object, you can also say, I can copy, I can take a screenshot of it. However, that's not the original one. And if you are a collector, originality is, of course, an important concept. So you want to stick to it. Another realm in which they are uh, growing a lot, actually, it's the one where they initially grew under the carpet in 2019-20, is gaming, is the gaming industry. So we are used to video games where you 
go on level after level and you have some um, objects can be a sword or a weapon and and that object actually belongs however to the nobody or if you want to the game producer now these objects in the virtual world can belong to you so if you conquer a sword by killing a monster that sword is yours and you can sell it jeff he's given me a brilliant idea which is i should get back to manic miner get to the 20th level <laughs> and then i could auction it as an nft is that that's basically what you're saying to me ed reaches level 20 on manic miner what do you think jeff absolutely i mean all those hours you spent as a teenager playing it could finally pay off in some way probably we have all heard about the metaverse i mean mark zuckerberg did a video uh, anticipating that we will live in a metaverse where we basically meet in virtual bars and where we, for some reason, gather there instead of an apartment. But imagine this happens. In that description, who's the owner of that bar? Well, it's easy to guess that the owner of that bar is uh, Meta itself, Facebook itself. But in this way, this could be my bar, and if you come and you like my music, I get a little bit of money out of it. So it's an ownership of of a a digital artifact, in that case, less easy to reproduce, if you want, but still reproducible, because in the end it's code, so you could copy it. Plus, NFTs to sell experiences that are not reproducible. For example, I can say say that uh, if you buy my NFT to come to my concert, then I will also make you a share owner of the record made out of the live. And you will get some some of it. And have you been able to look at any of the principles that underpin NFTs and see applications to society beyond the things that are already starting to happen in those creative industries? Well, there is a huge experimentation there. This leads me to speak about another technical term, however, which is DAOs, uh, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And basically, resorting to the blockchain and NFT can be an access to a DAO. You could have organizations that select how to uh, invest funds. If you think about charities today, there is a big problem of... uh, lack of transparency, often. If you set up a charity as a DAO, and you could say that every founder has, for example, an NFT that grants them uh, voting rights, you would have an organization that is, for example, uh, putting out a call to say, I want to save this forest. What's your ideas for it? Ideas are presented. All the founders vote in a transparent way. And uh, we are granted that the majority, the, the, the proposal who gets the majority of the votes gets funded and nobody else gets anything. So all the money went to the cause. It's very transparent. So that's, for example, one possible application. Do you see a role for governments in all of this because it can sometimes feel like with the cryptocurrency blockchain nft world one of the reasons that people like it is they don't have to play by the same rules which then leads to it being a bit of a wild west so 
is it inevitable that governments will figure out a way to regulate this? And what would the benefits of that be? So, yes, regulation is needed and governments are on it somehow. The EU has uh, included implicitly NFTs into the cryptocurrency scheme of regulation in, in this summer. And it will happen. It's important for two reasons. One is consumer protection. Because, of course, you can be scammed in, in many ways. And, and it's important to, to guarantee this. The other one is uh, money laundering. So, of course, now these this weird emerging markets are surely appealing for people who want to launder money by buying a JPEG. That's, that's the use. The problem, the difficulty is that is the versatility of NFT. And so it looks like one regulation for all of them, it's, it's not obvious. And so there is, there will be the typical uh, problem of regulating emerging technologies, which is balancing between consumer protection and, and anti-money laundering, in this case, and innovation, I would say. But yeah, it's important and, and it will come. Well, Andrea, that's been an incredibly helpful and insightful explanation of uh, some of the issues uh, where NFTs could actually be uh, an advantage and how to deal with some of these really serious environmental issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I feel educated. Me too. Educating Ed and Jeff. When we did cryptocurrencies a while ago, we were looped into Twitter threads where people were saying, um, it's, it's really one-sided. It's a very negative view. And I remember thinking at the time that what we'd done actually wasn't that negative, but there's such a gold rush that they get really annoyed at any kind of criticism. So I was sort of quite mindful of that when this, this came up as a, a topic. Like, is it, is it just a gold rush? And I think, what I've come to think after having had those conversations is we just don't know what the implications of NFTs are yet. They're new and the art world is involved. They've got tech in them, which is protected from a media perspective, and there's loads of money swimming around. So they're a buzzword. But over time, if these environmental concerns can be addressed, we, we don't know what it will look like. It might have nothing to do with jpegs and images it it might be transformative in ways that we can't even think of yet so it's too soon to make sense of what it will become yeah. but it's important to try and wrap our heads around it i think you've put it incredibly well i'd say clearly a sort of precondition of this thing being kind of remotely acceptable is fixing the environmental damage it's causing yeah you think yeah because otherwise it's like doesn't get off yeah. the ground for me secondly there's obviously a kind of massive bubble aspect to it which which is quite anxiety making because you just worry about the the, the bubble and people are going to lose their shirts so so i think the combination of what holly was saying and then what andrea was saying and it was part of the conversation with anthony makes you think well okay you can see the bad aspect the sort of froth aspects of this and the pro really problematic environmental aspects of it but maybe there's something good that can come 
from this. I still struggle a bit with the what are you buying? Yeah, problem. but that's not to be completely dismissive of the art aspect of it or the creative aspect of it, because there has been this problem with artists not being compensated for their work, but other people making a lot of money off it. And this perhaps could play a part in solving that. If you get the what is actually being sold, which I still struggle with a bit but look it's important i think the thing is we often say on this podcast that public policy is miles behind technology technology moves at breakneck speed and public policy moves at a snail's pace and therefore we're trying to do our bit to sort of push the snail along send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast we're in the outro we are so i've got a question for you as we go into the outro because my wife is encouraging me to have hobbies because i'm not um, as you know quite a work focused person and i think one hobby i'd like to have is cooking now can i just raise this issue with you which is i am very good at buying cookbooks i'm very bad at cooking recipes from cookbooks the denominator is in the 20s and 30s i've bought lots of cookbooks but the numerator uh, the number of recipes I've, i've made is very low i think it's your entry point is your problem you need to start with a cookbook that isn't going to overface you and oh, send you around loads of um, oh, grocery see. stores yeah. looking for niche ingredients i mean i've been through a number of phases of this i made lots of muffins after i stopped being leader of 2015 <laughs> <laughs> do muffins taste of trauma to you now i wonder if they do actually maybe but then i remember i had that bad moment with the black bean soup and didn't it look like an oil spill yeah that was just bad maybe i need to sort of maybe you need to be my coach on this well i'm i'm here i'm gonna be on call anytime like you're sponsor and i'll be your motivational coach when it comes to ice skating i've noticed that your phone these days if i ever send you a text it just says ed has his notifications switched off but then there's a thing you can press which says notify anyway don't notify anyway me mister (laughs) what's the etiquette on notify anyway doesn't it need to be a sort of emergency if you're doing notify anyway i feel like you're denying me my right to exist unless i press notify anyway I think there should be a special setting on your phone, a bit like the uh, the red phone in the Oval Office, that if I send you a text, it just always comes straight through. I hate to sort of tell you this piece of news because I'm not promising to use it, but I think there is a thing called customised notifications. So I didn't make the customization list. Well, no, one, no one's customised. OK. It's not just you. Shall we thank our guests? Yes. Thanks to Anthony Cuthbertson, to Holly Jean Book and Andrea Baron-Kelly. Emma Caution produces our podcast. Thank you to Emma for taking these scraps that we bring to her every week and editing it together into something. A tapestry. It is a tapestry. And all our research and guest booking was done this week by Joe Kenyon from Goldfish. Thank you to Joe Kenyon. He's stepped up. He's stepped up, stepped to the in plate. and stepped out. He's hit a home run. With men on base or not? Who's playing base? Yeah, it's a two-run homer. Homer who? Homer Simpson? <laughs> no, home run. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. Um, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been taking the plunge. He's been on thin ice. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful.